Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, it's Ronit. A quick announcement that the short story collection I wrote, Home is a Made-Up Place, has just been released and is available wherever you get books. And so if your bookstore or library do not yet have it, you can request Home is a Made-Up Place and they should be able to get it in pretty quickly. Now, it is a short fiction collection, and I realize that this is a memoir podcast, but I have written both, and so if you are interested in fiction and you like short stories, you might enjoy the collection. Uh, In addition, if you are in the Seattle area, I have a live book event at Third Place Books in Ravenna, and that will be on Tuesday, April 4th at 7 p.m., and there will be books for sale and a book signing afterward. In more book news, I will be in New York and Connecticut in April as well for a couple of book events. So if you are anywhere near Woodstock, New York, or Cold Spring, New York, I will be there on April 15th in a daytime event at the Golden Notebook and an evening event at the Butterfield Library. Lastly, on April 20th, which is a Thursday, I will be in Norwalk, Connecticut at the library for Writers in Conversation, and that is an evening event. I will list all of these on my website under services and then scroll down to events. And I'll also have a quick link in Instagram at Ronit Plank in my bio. That's where you can find information on my memoir, on the short story collection, how to order, other episodes of Let's Talk Memoir, and any other recent projects. I think that's it for now. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for sharing the podcast with your friends. There has been a recent uptick in downloads, and it seems that more and more people are tuning into Let's Talk Memoir every week, if not every day. So if you like the show, please keep on sharing and telling your writing friends about it. Post on social media. You can even leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's really helpful as well. Thank you again. And without further ado, here is this week's episode. Today, my guest is Sandy Weisenberg, who is the author of the new book, The Wandering Womb, Essays in Search of Home, winner of the Juniper Prize in Creative Nonfiction. She's also the author of a short story collection, The Sweetheart is In, an essay collection, Holocaust Girls, History, Memory, and Other Obsessions, and a nonfiction chronicle, The Adventures of Cancer Bitch. She is a fourth-generation native Texan who lives in Chicago and edits another Chicago magazine. She has an MFA in fiction from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop and a BSJ from the Medal School of Journalism at Northwestern University. She was a feature writer for the Miami Herald and has published prose and poetry in The New Yorker, Plowshares, Narrative, Prairie Schooner, New England Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, Colorado Review, and many other places. Her anthologized work is in Short Takes, Brief Encounters with Contemporary Nonfiction, Creating Nonfiction, A Guide and Anthology, Imaginative Writing, The Elements of Craft, Life is Short, 
Artist Shorter, and a number of other books. For 10 years, she was co-director of Northwestern's then MA, MFA in Creative Writing program and was a graduate faculty recipient of a Distinguished Teacher Award. She has been the literary editor of Tri-Quarterly, the creative nonfiction editor of another Chicago magazine, and she's received a Pushcart Prize, fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council, Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. She is working on a collection of short stories that are pre- and post-Holocaust and have a connection to old movies and Houston. One of these was runner-up in Narrative Magazine's Fall 2021 contest, and another won Narrative Spring 22 contest. Welcome, Sandy! Okay, thank you, Ronit. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here after we had some technical difficulties. We had our technical challenges in the beginning, which really made us stronger. <laughs> yes. And you're here. It, it broke the ice, so to speak. So now we're like old friends. And we've pretty much been record. We've been on like the line with each other for at least a half hour, even though we're just recording now, right? Right. I'm going to just put you as my technical advisor and call you every time I have a technical problem. That's fine. I also, hope you're it's, ready. Yeah. Well, my, my teenagers would laugh because they don't believe I can do anything like that. But also, um, you know, I say this sometimes in other podcast interviews, but I used to break into a cold sweat whenever anything technical went wrong. Absolute cold sweat and it's just like paralysis. And now I'm just like, as you can tell from my text to you in our conversation while we were trying to figure it out, I was like, okay, it's fine. Like, I'm just hanging around. There's no sweat because I'm used to it, right? And and I knew we would figure it out. So, okay, so here we are. I'm shaking it out. Let's talk about The Wandering Womb, which is your Essays in Search of Home. Can you share a little bit about this or a lot about this? We're going to dive in and talk all about it, but this is your chance to sort of give an overview. Okay, it's always very, very hard for writers who have an essay collection or short story collection or a poetry collection, I think, to say what it's about because most of the pieces were written over different over a long period of time and it's like oh my goodness how do we put them all together so i put these together in all these different ways and at some point i came up with the idea that i grew up in texas but my psychic space was taken up by europe and when i entered this into the contest for the juniper prize the title was the ghost of europe because i thought aha i know what this is about this is about how I'm always followed by this ghost of Europe. But then my friend said, it sounds like there's a ghost somewhere in Europe <laughs> and you're writing about this ghost and it's haunting a house <laughs> or a building. And so that's what this is about. I thought, no, maybe that's not right. Okay, so it's called The Wandering Womb, which somebody who is not Jewish told me it sounds kind of like wandering Jew. Mm-hmm. you know, the same uh, vowel sound. Mm-hmm. So it is about being a wandering Jew. There's a lot of travel in there. Psychologically, I'm looking for home because I grew up in Texas, but I didn't feel at home. And it wasn't because there were all these Texans there and I was Jewish. It was because there were all these Jewish Texans there. And I was just very, very self-conscious as a person. And I have analyzed myself for many, many years And a lot of it was because I had asthma, according to my family, since I was a few days old. And so that makes you very, very self-conscious and afraid. I also was anxious and depressed sometimes. And so that makes you 
self-conscious. So I would just think a lot about things. And I would, I heard about the Holocaust early on, though nobody in my immediate family was involved in it. And I would think, oh my God, if the Nazis took me away, I would die because mm -hmm. I have asthma. Mm -hmm. So a couple of the essays have to do with that. Some have to do with my relationship to my body and my relationship to the world. And they're about being Jewish. And some are about being in my early 30s and dealing with ennui while I was traveling. Bits and pieces about my life and my concerns through now. And I think I was looking for just a home, a place where I felt uh, at home. There's a piece that's maybe a little bit lighter than the others about um, going through sorority rush when I was mm -hmm. 29. Uh, that's looking for a home, right? Physically yes, yes, at house. Yes. And I mean, it was kind of cheating because I wasn't really trying to get in the sorority, but I kind of got into it. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was confused about who I was. Mm -hmm. um, but um, that was one part of looking for home. The other part at the very end, um, I talk about how my husband and I were thinking of renting out our basement, but instead we decided just letting friends and family and friends of friends and activists stay there. And I think the essence of home is having a place you can offer to other people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me too, because I would say then, okay, while it might not be fun or easy, and, and it might feel oversimplified to try to figure out what the themes are, do, am I right in saying that if the piece that you were including had something to do with searching for home or who you were, it, it felt like it could be in this collection? Yeah, or maybe it was even more intuitive, like these mm -hmm. pieces seem to fit. And it's a, it's arbitrary because there's some other pieces I didn't include. Mm -hmm. There's a piece about riding on the L and, and the subway in Chicago and, and the bus and running into people all the time. <laughs> and that kind of could have fit in, but for some reason I just didn't feel it did. Now... Uh, See, the reason I'm asking, I should probably I should probably unveil the reason is because I once put a collection together because I didn't have a lot of work yet, right? So I put together, it was sort of a multi-genre, cross-genre submission. So I put together short stories and some essays, and I was like, here it is, it's a collection. But really, you know, they probably didn't all belong together. So my, my impulse would be as a writer to say, well, these are the pieces I have, so let me put them together because then I have a manuscript, right? But I guess what I'm looking at in talking with you about your experience with this is that you have so much work, so much to choose from, you know, and I don't even know, were any of these pieces brand new for this book? Yeah, um, there was a long piece and I was rereading it and I thought, wow, this really meanders. But as, <laughs> as Philip Lopate says, you know, the, you see the mind at work in an essay. So that's what yes. an essay can do even though these are also memoiristic essays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's one piece I was just trying to figure it out. Like, what is this piece? What is it about? And I was writing about, why am I thinking about Russia? Mm -hmm. And what does Russia mean to me? And 
I also wanted to write about Selma, Alabama, because that is where my great-grandparents brought their family when they left the shtetl called mm-hmm. Pusvatin in Lithuania. Mm-hmm. I, I went to Selma, and I've talked to people there, and I was like, what am I doing? And I, I had a book that I wrote about the South, but I realized later that it was just too superficial. Hmm. So I wanted to write about family and settling in the South, and and I kept thinking about Russia, and this mm-hmm. was before the war with Ukraine, yes. and it was during the pandemic, and I was thinking, for me, Russia was just this color on a map that was just gray or, or, or dirty white, and what is this? Mm-hmm. And I think I was thinking of space as time, that we're in the pandemic, there's no vaccine, and just as Russia is endless and undifferentiated, so my time in the pandemic is is just endless. Mm-hmm. And so I played with that idea and with thinking back, where am I from? Why does it matter where I'm from? Who says we? Like I say we, we're from Lithuania. It's like people look at me, no, you're not from Lithuania, but I feel like from Lithuania, though I've never been there. And then going to a Civil War battle reenactment in Selma, and this woman who was selling thread is talking about how we couldn't get thread during the blockade. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about the blockade during the Civil War. So she's obviously identifying with her ancestors. Yes. And it's it's a funny thing. We're really identifying with what we think they were like or what we think it would be like. Well, I really felt, you know, I, I want to let you know that I definitely felt like I was in your mind for a lot of this with your mind at work, um, as you as you mentioned, Philip Lopate says. And I think it was it was a real joy to sort of be there with you and sort of like whoa whoa that's where her mind is going well like and I appreciated it too because I can fall into sort of rigidity sometimes in my own writing I'm getting better about that I'm trying new forms but it was really it was really freeing to read that and to say you know this piece goes here because Sandy Weisenberg has decided it goes here and that is where it belongs Okay, you know, <laughs> I should get that on a poster, you know, <laughs> about so, everything. Yes, um. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yes. Also, I feel like it, I think we should spend a moment because we're both Jewish. And believe it or not, I'm from New York originally ish and Israel and live in on the West Coast now. And I feel like, of course, my first thought was there are Jews in Texas, you know, when I was reading your book. Um, mm-hmm. But I do know there are Southern Jews. But I think it's important for me to let other listeners know, uh, you know, what a shtetl is and this whole wandering Jew thing and what this Jewish thing is, right? Because if you're not Jewish, you might not totally understand it, you know, what we're talking about. So would you like to define a shtetl? I will try. A shtetl was like a a place, a mostly Jewish place somewhere usually in Eastern Europe. It was just a settlement. Mm-hmm. But it was not like a wealthy situation. You were People were pretty much like crammed in there. I mean, wouldn't you say it's a little like Fiddler on the Roof-ish or no? Oh, totally. Totally. Yes. yes. And so think about that. 
Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And and there were, you know, you write about pogroms, which my father, who's a giant Jewish scholar, you know, my father read the Torah in Aramaic for fun. Like, he just mm. loves this. And he taught me and my sister about pogroms a long time ago. But I don't know that everyone knows about pogroms. So do you want to, and it, it does feature in your book. So um, especially that really big pogrom in Russia, which was it 1903? Yes. Do you want to just mention that a little bit? I just good to to offer some background here. Yeah, no, you're totally right to ask, and I'll try to do it justice. Uh, pogrom is just a large scale attack on a Jewish community, and I I've seen it used for other groups. Um, so I don't think it's just against Jews, and I don't know the etymology of it, but. It was just a shorthand way of talking about an attack often took place around Easter time because that's when you would go to church and you would hear about how the Jews killed our Lord and then you might go drink up a bit and then go attack these terrible Jews for killing Christ and for being the tax collectors and the money lenders because those were about the only jobs they could get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I because they've been marginalized. You know, they're, they're, there's a whole history about this that we probably can't even nearly unpack at all in, in this time. But basically, Jews were marginalized and disenfranchised in many ways, and so there were only a couple of jobs available to them. Exactly, exactly. There weren't a lot of Jewish farmers because you couldn't own land usually. Um Yes. And then money, you know, they were money lenders and they could handle money on Sundays and things like that. So it's just like it's it's sort of was like this circle. Right. And what I learned in your book, among many other things, was that exactly how violent these programs had been. And so, you know, you're you bring the reader to these places and times that I don't read about a lot myself. I don't spend a lot of time pursuing books on this. And so it was useful to me and it, it, it helped me understand a little bit better about what was going on in this time period and what Jews experienced, which also is the wandering Jew thing. And I know what that is, but I think if you're not Jewish, you might not totally get the wandering Jew and and thus the wandering womb. And so in your mind, what is the wandering Jew? Like, where does that come from for you? I'm glad you said in my mind <laughs> because <laughs> I don't have to give a scholarly answer. Yeah, no, I don't want you to be scholarly because I'm sort of like feeling my way into the question, right? Like what it means to me. Like for me, it meant like we didn't have a we, we didn't have a place to be because nobody really, you know, wanted the Jews and they were kind of cast out a lot and they were, you know, that that's kind of where it comes from. And there's a plant called the wandering Jew. There is. I think Jews were also attacked on the other side for being wandering and not having allegiances, but in being cosmopolitan. But if you weren't allowed to stay somewhere, if there were edicts against you or if there was an attack on you, of course you'd move. Mm-hmm. So that was the wandering Jew. And of course, if there are people who are more scholarly listening to this they might have more to answer yes 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 so i just think to say yes this is context and you know the the book also i'm going to interrupt our interview for a moment to insert some background on the wandering jew after sandy and i were done with our interview we decided that i would 
come back and add to what we talked about so that there would be a little bit more information about the history of the wandering Jew trope. So I went to one of my favorite sites, rootsmetals.com, to get some information. Um, rootsmetals.com has a lot of information on Jewish history and the origin of Judaism and also anti-Semitism. So if you want to do further reading, you can find so much there. And here is what I want to add about the wandering Jew. All right, and I'm going to use some quotations here and there, which I will mention as I go. The quote wandering Jew trope has its origins in 13th century Europe. According to legend, Jews are cursed to wander the earth until the second coming of Jesus, stateless as punishment for quote taunting Jesus on the cross. The legend varies from place to place and time period to time period, but many historians believe that the quote biblical justification for the legend is found in Matthew 16:28, and here is the quote. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. End quote. The legend depicts the wandering Jew as an evil, mythical, immortal creature. Between the 1500s and 1800s, so-called, quote, sightings of the wandering Jew were common in Europe and later the Americas. In 1911, historian and folklorist Joseph Jacobs wrote, Quote, it is difficult to tell in any one of these cases how far the story is an entire fiction and how far some ingenious imposter took advantage of the existence of the myth, end quote. Oftentimes, wandering Jew, quote, sightings were used as pretext for Christians to go into Jewish quarters to massacre Jews. In the beginning of the wandering Jew, it was simply a legend. However, over the centuries, the wandering Jew morphed into an anti-Semitic trope and a metaphor for the plight of the Jews, displaced from their homeland and cursed to wander the earth stateless until the second coming of Jesus. Now, in the 19th to 20th centuries, the wandering Jew, also known as the eternal Jew, morphed from a legend to an anti-Semitic trope and metaphor for the plight of the Jews, particularly in the aftermath of the French Revolution and the rise of the, quote, Jewish question. The question being, what should be the fate of Europe's Jews? In 1852, an anti-Semitic caricature of the wandering Jew was first published in a French publication. The caricature depicted the wandering Jew with a, quote, red cross on his forehead, spindly legs and arms, huge nose and blowing hair, and staff in hand, end quote. In the late 1930s, the Nazis took the image as inspiration for an anti-Semitic art exhibition called, quote, The Wandering Jew Eternal, end quote. In the 1940s, the Nazis took it a step further with their propaganda film, quote, The Eternal Jew. It's worth noting, says Roots Metals, that Europeans were very much aware of the Jews' geographic origins. They simply believed that Jews were doomed to statelessness for their, quote, crime of rejecting Jesus. Okay, that's enough history for now. And like I said, if you want more, 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 more wonderful, wonderful resources, go to rootsmetals.com. And now back to the interview with Sandy Weisenberg you know you've done so much career-wise with writing you know reading your bio 
and I cut some of it down <laughs> to like read it because you've done so many different things with your writing career and you've been a journalist and you're an editor and I'm curious how approaching the material in this book contrasts or intersects with that kind of work that you've done you know does it draw on different aspects of you as you're creating it you know what tools do you feel you use that are similar or different when you're creating work like this well in journalism school We've learned to be arrogant, and it was in the sense of you believe that you could learn about a topic in a few hours and that you could explain it to other people. And that was really important because it counteracts my natural insecurity about achieving mastery over a subject. Mm. And we also had to call people cold. I think a lot of journalists these days, they use email or text messages but you had to just pick up the phone and call people. And so that's been good training too, even though it was really hard. I remember calling somebody once when I had an internship at a newspaper and they wouldn't talk to me and they put down the phone and I was like, oh no, they hung up on me. <laughs> um, but I have called people, like there's a piece about not wanting to go to sleep in here and I called sleep researchers and talked to them on trips, if I didn't remember something, I would call someone who we had met on route and ask her, did you remember this? Or what was this like for you? And journalism is easy, easy for me in the sense that I'm very nosy, but I'm always afraid some time, you know, some time to, to get in touch with people and afraid they won't talk to me. So would you say this is like this writing memoiristic essays, as you call them, is that a relief in a way because it's really drawing from you only? But still, there are a lot of times where you have to call somebody up where I feel like I had to call somebody up and get more explanation about something. And also, I've done a lot of research and in, in I'll, I'll research things that might seem they don't fit, but they fit in my head. I'm very associative Yes, that's very clear in the book. <laughs> no, I like it. I'm not I'm not disparaging it. I mean, I really like it. I was like, ooh, like I said, it's like a bendy road that I went on when I read, you know, some of these these sections. Well, you know, I was looking back. I keep a lot of things. I was looking back at at letters and I saw a letter from someone my next-door neighbor when I was growing up and we would write each other during college. And he wrote a letter to me where like every other sentence was random. And then at the end, he said, who does this remind you of? I hope you take this as a lesson. <laughs> and so apparently he thought my letters were totally random, and, and, and maybe they were. Um, you asked about being a journalist and an editor. I think being an editor has helped me with structure, and I, I've always had a trouble with structure. And even when, when I was in college for the first quarter, the, the teacher you know, wanted to see me, and and in my my midterm in class essay, I had jumped around a lot, and he was saying you need to learn structure, and I was like, well, I'm a journalism major, you know, how can he be telling me this? But but I don't have a very orderly mind, and I I can write in the inverted pyramid, which is the journalistic concept of most important thing first in very broad terms, and then you define it as you go along. 
I, I can do that, and maybe that's been helpful too. And, and the only thing in editing, it's much easier to find structure in somebody else's work than your own. Mm, that's true, yeah. And sure. yeah, yeah, but I still do sometimes look at the beginning of my pieces and think what's the tension in it, and is that explored throughout, and is there some way it's wrapped up but not too neatly at the end? Mm, yes, that that is a trick, isn't it? Wrapping it up, but not too neatly. Yeah. Uh, so, in your acknowledgments, uh, and we're gonna, I'm gonna have you read an excerpt in a moment. But in your acknowledgments, you mentioned that the book took a long time, and I I think this is really important as a reminder to writers. So, I guess I'm curious when you knew that you had a book, and when you knew you were gonna put these together. And if you have some words of encouragement for writers, you know, who may not understand how long it can take. I don't know when I figured out it was a book. I don't even know when when I started sending this out. It was several years, and I would reconfigure it. At one time, it was called uh, The Jewess, <laughs> and I claimed I was trying to reclaim this term Jewess, which has sometimes been pejorative. I think what I find with beginning writers is they don't want to revise. And we all want to feel like we're the girl in the fairy tale where everything golden falls from her mouth. (laughs) You know, where gold coins and flowers and everything falls out. And, And it's like, what? I wrote this. It's, it's my heart. It's my soul. And how can you say I have to change it? And even though I've been writing a long time, sometimes I'll be in, in my writing group and people will say something and I'll just, inside I'm really defensive, like, oh, you just can't get this. There's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with this. And, and all you can do is put it aside and um, come back to it later I think I write pretty quickly. It takes me a long time to put things together, though. And there are some writers who just write, or they just write everything in their head, and then it just comes out the way hmm. it should be, or the way it works. And Henry James was like this, and I know a couple of contemporary writers like this, but they're doing all the writing in their head. They're in the revising hmm. in their head. And it's very easy, especially if you hang around with writers or you went to a competitive workshop or university to compare yourself with others. And I heard someone the other day saying, oh, in my early 30s, I'm, I'm, this is how old I am, and I'm thinking of these people who are 22 and have a best-selling novel. Well, it just gets worse the older you get. <laughs> you know, I used to think, oh, people are older than me, so I couldn't have done this. And then it's like, this person was born when I graduated from high school, and they had 11 books. Mm. And maybe it's fast for them, but that's their timeline, and it's not yours. Yeah. I think I have that same uh, condition, or I've had that same condition you're talking about, where you're, you want to believe that the things that come out of you are perfect the way they are. And I think I've had this in lots of things. Like, for example, uh, you know, I would do a sport for the first time in junior high school and think I should be amazing at it, but I would get clobbered. And I was like, why? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Like, can't I have a secret stealth skill? 
that just pops out of me that I'm naturally good at. And I felt that way when I was acting and I felt that way when I, well, no, I think with writing I was more humble. But there are times where you want it to just be the way it is. You want it to hatch out of you the way it needs to be, right? But I've only actually had that happen twice, I think, in my life where I wrote something and only had to revise it very lightly because it just happened to be what it needed to be. But most of the time, that does not happen. I really like your image of Hatch. <laughs> that yeah. you, you put forth this egg and, it, and what comes yes. out of it is just perfect. You know, oh, and yes. there's, some, there's some mystery there too, because you're just creating the egg, but you don't really know what's inside. Yeah, it, it is like, like, why can't you be a natural? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. And I think hearing from you that it isn't like that really and you've had all this time doing so many different genres and your writing is really helpful you know for all of us so the first excerpt I asked about was from mikvah the section called the written and this is from your book um and I'm hoping you can read that section I sent to you and then we can talk about it yeah uh let me explain what a mikvah is um it's more often used by women than men and um, there are certain times when a woman is unclean and it's surprised during her period. Oh, my God, who would have thought? And for a certain number of days after. And also when you have a give birth and for a certain period of days after. And that means that you cannot touch your husband and you cannot have sex. And I talk about how I went to a mikvah with a friend, basically out of curiosity. And even though there are people who have reimagined the mikvah and made it very progressive and said it's a nice ritual, like if you're going through a divorce, you can have go through the mikvah and you can have a before and after. I'm still saying, eh, I don't know. And this particular piece just came out of an image I had of just all these men writing on women's bodies. So... It's as if the rabbis have been writing all over our bodies for centuries, crafting their arguments onto our skin in Aramaic and Hebrew and Middle French and German, Yiddish, and English. They have been examining women's drips and discharges and dispatches and holding them up to the light. Of course, the rabbis have also been inspecting chickens and making pronouncements about giving to charity, and on stealing and stoning, and on burial customs, and about the pronouncements of their predecessors on law and Torah, and what this or that word meant in this or that portion of the Bible, which was written by God himself, of course. And the Gentile experts haven't exactly been slackers in giving their opinions on women either. One day my skin will be covered with their words, so much so that the words will cover other words from centuries past. Their interpretations will have canceled one another out, and my skin will be one wet, dark, blue-black shape under layers of ink. Then, say the rabbis, she'll be ready for the mikvah. No, then I will rest. No, no, they insist, you will clean yourself and then immerse so that we can start writing all over again. And then they will come an army of red-handed women, fingers stretched out, 
ready to paint over the skin and the beards and the crisp white creased shirts of these men. Their cry will shatter the heavens. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm just going to go for this question, which is the role of feminism in Judaism, you know, and, and how, I mean, I, I see feminism in reform Judaism, you know, I'm a reform Jew and, you know, I believe myself to be a feminist. And do you think you can be a feminist, very religious Jew? Can you be a feminist Orthodox woman? What do you think? I have a friend who does that. And it's interesting. She's got a, a bunch of, she has a bunch of children and they're one at least is very, very religious and the others are all over the map. And I think you can take the parts that are meaningful and rework some prayers and rituals that are misogynist. Hmm. But then the question is, if you stretch it too much, are you creating a different religion? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right. yeah, there are feminists who are wrestling with this. And um, I, I'm not a scholar and I'm not that religious, but there are people who are reinterpreting things and creating midrash, which is sort of like fan fiction. It's like creating a story underneath the story. Mm-hmm. I belong to a renewal congregation, which is like reform, but maybe a little looser. Mm-hmm. And in the prayer book, it refers to God like 10 different ways. So sometimes male, sometimes female, sometimes just the source or the light. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense to me. We also did a role-playing exercise uh, over the high holidays. There's a story about Hagar and Sarah and Abraham. And um, Sarah has a son and Hagar, who was um, a concubine or a wife of Abraham, the patriarch. She has a son and Sarah says to Abraham, Abraham, you got to get rid of them. And so we did role-playing it was a way of trying to inhabit the story mm-hmm. and get more meaning from it. Um, and I, I also was a student in a informal Torah study a number of years ago. And we would ask, why would the writers be telling this story? And what interests were served? So it was a kind of sociological way mm-hmm. of looking at the Torah. So on the one hand, you have people like me who think obviously people wrote this, and then you have more mystical and more religious Jews who are saying God wrote this. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of space in between. Mm-hmm. I I thought too about this idea because I don't think I write about Judaism too much. I've had a couple of you know pieces out there like that, but what I'm wondering about is in a mostly non-Jewish world what it's like to write about and put into the world. Um, the parts of Judaism that you find problematic? I don't know. I mean, I, I, you write what you write, and then you hope people get it. I wrote this book called Holocaust Girls, and this is in the Jewish press. Somebody wrote, writer to explore her strange Holocaust obsession. <laughs> the headline was something like that. And I assumed... There were a lot of people who were thinking and reading a lot about the Holocaust too much 
and mm-hmm. identifying with it too much. And so I was kind of making fun of this, also making fun of myself. But a lot of people didn't get it. And I think if Jews didn't get it, then probably non-Jews didn't get that either. Um, I don't know. I don't know if an anti-Semite could look at this and say, yeah, Jews do all these weird things. And even Jews are, are saying they're weird. I think you are very right to ask me to define some terms. I think maybe that helps non-Jews mm-hmm. understand what I'm writing about. I don't know. We'll have to see what people think. I mean, that's always the question. There's a Yiddish expression, you know, Shanda for de Goyim, you know, a, a Shanda, a, a scandal for the non-Jews. You, you can't wash your dirty linen in public. And I think every ethnic group or every neighborhood or every um, group of people feels that. Yeah, and that's why I asked about it. Yeah, because you are really taking a full view of what has been occupying your your headspace and what you, you think about. And I think, and, and you're putting it out for for you're welcoming people to see it as well and there are some very searing areas in in the book with that that talk about women and their bodies and and I mean searing in terms of you're taking a very critical look at what these traditions are and what the religion says and in what women's bodies mean and I appreciated it and I also haven't read that lately you know a, a, a critical eye for that and so I appreciated it and there's also this this Holocaust thing, and and we're gonna do your excerpt from the Jew in the Body, which, and and really, it's really hard to pick parts of your your memoir and essays to, to have you read because there's so much that could be read that would be useful in this conversation, but this is a really important element that I think, Jews probably do understand, and non-Jews might not. So I'm hoping you can read that section we talked about um, on page 135. Yeah, I think maybe Catholics identify with the saints, Mm. you know, and Mm -hmm. the martyrdom of the saint. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wanted to say one more thing to answer your your last question. I I talk about, in the first piece, about my shame, my Jewish shame, my my woman's shame of of having my period. And I I suppose non-Jews, non-Jews who are anti-Semitic could say, well, look, the Jews feel bad about being Jews. Look at this. There's something wrong with them. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> onward. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it's a brave thing, and it's, it's you know, I I appreciate the conversation, I guess. I'm saying it in a really clumsy way, but, and I wondered if it ever figured into your, you know, if at all you were, you thought about it. You wrote what you needed to write, and you put it in the world, and then you know, it's out there, and it's it's a it's a Jewish woman contemplating being a Jewish woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> okay. In Sunday school, where we learned our history and occasionally talked about ethics, we talked about a different kind of Jewish body, not the one that recites a blessing on making light or on smelling sweet havdalah spices or the one that feels in her bones the liberation of the exodus, but the unmoving and disappeared Jewish bodies from another decade and another continent. Jews are enjoined from worshiping graven images, 
but this is what post-war American Jewry has done, worshipping at the shrine of Auschwitz, worshipping our second cousins twice removed, whom we never knew, who didn't get on the boat with our grandparents in 1910, and who couldn't get on a ship in 1939. Theirs was the road not taken. Theirs was our true destiny, avoided. Our six million martyrs and saints. Unlike the Catholics, we don't pray to our saints. Instead, we beg their forgiveness for living. We weep for them. We procreate for them. We are grateful because they gave us an essential ingredient in the American post-melting pot. They gave us victimhood. And in the early 1960s, as a nearsighted eight-year-old girl who had had asthma since she was only a few days old, I knew that without my glasses and my asthma medicine, if or when, it was just a matter of when, I was taken away to a concentration camp, I would die immediately as I was meant to. Because of this, or concurrent with this, this being the communal burden of the Holocaust, and this being furthermore the personal burden of asthma, the burden of self-consciousness that was brought early to my breathing, which should be an unconscious, easy, untrammeled, and unnoisy practice. There has been a voice inside me since always, a voice from my body, a silent voice inside my body since always, telling me, you do not deserve to live. The voice says, you wouldn't have survived the camps. If your parents hadn't been able to afford your medicine, if they hadn't been able to afford your intermittent positive pressure breathing machine, you would be dead. And why do you deserve the machine? The medicine. It is only money that keeps you alive, and what did you do to deserve that money? The voice says that the artificial, the man-made, is keeping me standing and breathing and seeing, that so much has been given over to keeping me alive, that it is unfair, it is simply too much, too much, that too much of everything of the world is being used to keep me breathing. The voice asks, how do you justify all that has collected around you to keep you alive except to devote your life to the care of others, to the welfare of others? You must sacrifice yourself, all of what makes you you, because you have what you don't deserve. You will never deserve it, it being your life, so that the making of art is out of the question. Its utility has not been proven. If what you deserve is to die, then you don't deserve to be a writer. Thank you. Um, there's so much in that. And um, I just think, you know, I, it took, it went in a direction when I first read it that I hadn't anticipated. And I think, I mean, do you know writers who also feel that they shouldn't waste their time writing? I don't know if I know them. I mean, this has been something on my mind a long time. I remember there's Edward Upward, uh, who was a British writer and a communist, who had this problem. And there was Tina Modati, a, 
an Italian, or I'm not sure if she was Italian. Her name was Italian. Um, she was associated with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, and she was a lover of Edward Weston. And supposedly one day she threw her camera in a river, and she had been a photographer. So there are people who weigh that, usually political people. I wonder if you've, you know, how you've come to reconcile this idea that, you know, do you, did you deserve to live? You know, do you deserve to be a writer? How have you moved forward? How have you continued to create amongst those doubts in your life that you've had? I think as as writing has gotten harder for me than, then maybe that that's the answer where I'm struggling with my writing so then I can write <laughs> sort of a Kafka-esque formation. Um, <laughs> you know, if writing was easy, then I shouldn't do it. I don't know. And in my writing, I think writing has gotten harder for me maybe because my writing has gotten more complex or, or the structure's gotten more complex. Um, but it's still with me and it's still the question you know, how much do you give to Doctors Without Borders? Do you give so that you can't afford to live anymore? You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I met this guy once. I was in Nicaragua and I met this American guy and he had he had figured out how much of the world's resources each person deserved, just if you were dividing everything up equally. And so then he allotted that much to himself and so he moved into a friend's garage and just gave himself that amount of food, etc. And his wife left him, and um, then he was in Nicaragua for some time. So I don't know what you do with inequality. You have to figure out how much to give to others and how much to give to yourself. And, and if you're a really wonderful person, like this friend of mine I know in Berlin, she loves political action. She gets joy from it. So mm-hmm. she has no problem, you know, with yeah, it in a yeah. way. And yet she's, I think she's an herbalist or some kind of healer. But then you have to make the decision, am I a healer only for the poor? And if I am, then how do I support myself? So it's a constant question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I have heard myself say on several occasions, if I was on a deserted island with a whole bunch of people, I'm not going to be of any help. Like I can't, my, <laughs> skill, <laughs> my skills, like I'm kind of tough and hardy in a way and I talk a lot, but I'm not going to, my skills as a writer or a podcaster are not going to really save anyone. Yes, they are because you'll interview people about their experience. about about their life and their experience and what has worked and what hasn't and you'd record I guess the, so but I mean yeah. we're all going to perish right cuz I'm not going to be the one building the boat or catching the fish or right but you'll remember you'll say oh when we tried this way to build the boat it didn't work so now we're going to try this way to build the boat right a documentarian right yes and then you'll tell people stories around the campfire that, that give them solace. 
See, look what you did there. Yeah. This has been really affirming for both of us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so what advice would you like to give memoirists? I know that this is a memoiristic, you know, these are like memoiristic essays. It's a collection. But what advice would you give to memoirists who are in different stages of getting their manuscript together? You just have to write it, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but you have to write it, and like after you've written it, you can decide what to take out. You can decide to change um, the people you write about. And I, I came out awkward, but I wrote something in, in Holocaust Girls, and it was about uh, Passover Seder, which is the um, meal you have where you read from a book that explains why you're celebrating. And um, it's a big family event. And a relative of mine who was young was making fun of an older relative who was getting dementia. And I wanted to put that in, but I didn't want to pinpoint who it was, so I just fuzzied it up, you know, like a young, like I'm doing now. But I think when you write something like that, you write it, and then later on you can soften it. Uh, you can soften the identity and you write what you have to like your guest Laura Davis um, who wrote what she had to and then you can decide later what to do with it or if you want to turn it into fiction and create new characters who are having these same uh, dilemmas mm -hmm. yes yes I appreciate that I think it's it's very easy you know it's I hear from listeners who are at all different stages of their memoir relationship. They're starting, they're not sure they should write it, they've been writing for a long time, they're accomplished, all different all different levels and layers. And I think that it does come down to first you have to write it, right? We don't have we won't have the memoir until you write it. So get get writing. So what are memoirs that have meant a lot to you or have guided you in your writing life? When I was in Paris on my junior year abroad, I went to this little branch library, and I was looking around the English language section, and I discovered Christopher Isherwood, who wrote the Berlin stories. He's very self-effacing in there, but there is still a quality of being self-conscious and a little insecure, and that was important to me. And I also read The Company She Kept by Mary McCarthy, which is billed as a novel, but it's really little bits of memoir, I think. And she's very self-conscious and neurotic and that. Anybody who's <laughs> self-conscious and, and miserable and, and, and neurotic is like, oh, my God, you can write about that. So that was yes. very important. Any Philip Lopate was very important. Um, I just found his book in a library where he talked about Houston. It's like nobody writes about Houston. Uh, Brian Washington does now. A few people do. But 20, 30 years ago, nobody wrote about it. And so um, he really showed me what the memoir could do. It could be personal. It could be expository. It can provide information. Um, and Susan Griffin is really important uh, because she's very, very poetic, and at times she uses a lot of research. Are you are you able to uh, like uh, pinpoint a book or a title in particular of Susan Griffin's that you would like to specifically recommend? A Chorus of Stones 
where she writes about historical figures, but it's very, very infused with her own attitude mm -hmm. and very poetic. Mm -hmm. And I have it in front of me because I <laughs> thought you would ask this. She also wrote Woman and Nature, The Roaring Inside Her. And that's very poetic also. Great. Thank you. So I'll put those in the show notes uh, for reference. And where are the places or the place that people can find you to find more of your work? Uh, I have a website that is always in progress. And it's slweisenberg.com. And Weisenberg, for whatever reason, my family spells it W-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. Thank you. Sandy, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me and for sticking with me through the technical snafus, for not giving up. <laughs> And I'm so glad that we were able to talk and, and have this conversation about your new book. And um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for everything. And I want to say the same to you. Thanks for walking me through the earphone crisis of 2023. <laughs> well, it's good you got it out of the way, right? We're done right, with it now. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.